Welcome to Bell Curve with Mary Scott, Rachel, and Liz, three friends, three Southern Bells, joining you, smart women, to discuss life, work, relationships, business, everything from the nerdy to the normal, the practical to the philosophical, the head to the heart. Thanks for joining us as we observe, analyze, and often deviate from the standard. Kirby's. Hello, Mary Scott Hunter here. I'm here with my co-host Rachel Briers and Liz Bashirs and Patty Callahan. Hi, Patty. Hi, I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we are just super excited to have you on. And she's doing like a little dance. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I know you can't see, they can't see me, so. But it was oh, you can. <laughs> uh, let me start by thanking our Patreon subscribers. We always try to do that up front. And Patreon subscribers, you know who you are. Thank you very much. For those of you that aren't Patreon subscribers, please consider doing that. It's We have various levels, and we need the support. It helps us to put on the show uh, every week, every month. And we would be excited to have you on that list of Patreon subscribers. Today is Bell Curve Book Club Day. Was that like a bell in the background? That was, like perfect <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> We'll have to leave that in, Rachel. Absolutely. Uh, today is Bell Curve Book Club Day, and we have so enjoyed Patty Callahan's book, Becoming Mrs. Lewis. Patty is with us today. She's a New York Times bestselling author. She lives in Birmingham, Alabama. And Patty, I learned a lot. Of course, I read your book. I've, I read all about your book. I read all the reviews about your book. And then I listened to your podcast. You also oh, have a podcast, so we want to hear about that, too. And I think our listeners would also be interested in knowing about you, because this is your second career. You are, uh, you were a nurse before you were a writer. So we want to know a little bit about that. But let's just dive in. And Patty, before we get into your fabulous book, tell us a little bit about yourself. That is such a wide ranging question. And I know I was supposed to be prepared for that. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, so I was born on March 20th. I'll skip the year. Um, but yes, I am a novelist. I, my last book was called Becoming Mrs. Lewis, which is what we're talking about today. But before I was a novelist, I was a nurse. Um, I'm a mother of three and a wife and a sister and all the roles we play as women. And yet, um, I started writing about 20 years ago. So my first career was as a nurse. I actually, my master's degree is not in fiction. It's in pediatric nursing. And about 20 years ago, I said, I want to try and write one book, just one, because that was 15 books ago. But stories have sustained me for all my life. I have always believed profoundly in the power of story. And when I was in high school, I was um, super popular because I was in the Latin club. <laughs> popular at all. And, um, right up there with the chess club. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Debate club. Right. While everybody else was partying, I was reading The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. But in, 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 in the Latin club, of course, I learned about mythology. And ever since then, I have been vaguely obsessed, is probably not too light a word, with how stories form our lives and with how stories kind of determine our view of the world. Whatever stories we believe are the stories that shape our vision of the world. And so I have so long been such a bookworm nerd and believed in the power of story that I decided I wanted to write them. So were you like one of these little kids that walked around reading a book, like walked up and downstairs reading a book, just kind of devoured books? 
you know, the librarian loved you. Okay. <laughs> I used to get in trouble for reading. Um, I, I remember being on a car trip and it, it's a really vivid memory. And we were visiting on a car trip with the family, visiting the Grand Canyon. And I could not put the, my book down. I think I was really young. And I think I was reading Nancy Drew. And um, my mom and dad were like, get your nose out of that book and look at the scenery. <laughs> I was like, but she has to find the clue in the clock. So yes, I was, um, I got in trouble for, for checking out too many books and then returning them with sand in the pages and <laughs> libraries were my sanctuaries. So yes. and do you turn down the corners of books? I abuse my books. I'm, I'm such a, Oh, abuse. Mary Scott. How I know, dare. I know it's so bad. <laughs> So, many so you know what I started using are, I have some in here somewhere, those little darts. Hmm. Hmm. And they make the look book, book look pretty when you put those little metal darts in the page. Oh, I've seen those. Yeah, those are yeah. pretty. Those are pretty. I've been using those and I write the books I own. I don't write in library books, but I write in books too. I write in the margins and I underline. And I do that. I have always, I'm a, I'm a writer, of, you know, or an underliner. Do you underline? Mm-hmm. Oh, that? I underline, I mark, I write in the margin, I ask questions, even in the fiction books. Yeah. Hmm. Patty, awesome. what, what was a book that you look back and see really shaped you in those, you know, you've got, you talked about Nancy Drew, but what are, what are some of those books that you would say, hmm. oh yeah, that shaped me as a child? Wow. Um, I, this sounds strange because I never lived that life, but I remember reading Little House on the Prairie hmm. and wondering about the fortitude and perseverance of young girls. And what I would have been if that had been me. But as, as I grew older, I mean, obviously Narnia had a huge impact on me because I ended up writing about the author and, and his wife, or mainly about his wife. But something about those books so stuck with me that as a writer, I was never able to forget them. Hmm. Uh, that's my, the Little House on the Prairie series is yes. formative for me, especially the long, oh, the long winter. The <gasps> oh, yes. yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. I was thinking, sitting here thinking like, are we the same person? I have like the, the Little House on the Prairie series is so formative for me. There's so many, like we went to, um, Missouri when I was a kid my mom took us to Missouri to see the house that she and Almanzo ended up, you know, settling in, um, later in their lives and, and I have, have chills pictures of have me. Chills. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I have pictures of me in like a pioneer bonnet and all this kind of stuff. Just obsessed. I think my seventh birthday was Little House on the Prairie Pioneer theme. We made butter. <laughs> you are hardcore. I was, was going to say, you win. You actually oh, wait, win. Wait, you I might win. win. I might win. I actually made a book wreath out of my my uh, Little House on the Prairie, one of my books, I pulled out the pages. It felt a little sacrilegious, but I formed it into a wreath that's now hanging on my patio. So maybe I no win. Way. You win, but we're all obsessed with Laura Ingalls Wilder. How yes. amazing is that? That's awesome. Well, and I loved, and I love the Chronicles of Narnia too. And it was a whole new, I mean, and my, I don't know which, I'd love to know which your, my favorite is Voyage to the Dawn Treader. I just, that's, I loved Prince Caspian. I still kind of, I think I married Prince Caspian. I, yeah, uh, yeah it's, um, that was my favorite, but let's dive into the book because, because okay. your book is incredible. And I think everyone, yeah, I think everyone pretty much knows who C.S. Lewis is and, mm. you know, they know all that, but I, I don't, and I think if I think about it, I vaguely knew that he had a, controversial marriage or at least concernicus you know for some (laughs) so uh but i i I didn't 
I, I knew he married an American. I think I knew that, but I just, I didn't know the whole story. And so your book bubbled up for me when AL.com did the, the piece on your book. And I got it. I read it. I loved it. I proposed it to my two co-creators for, for this show. And um, so let's just kind of start there. Joy Davidman, uh, American Divorcee. Uh, Tell me, where does it start? Where did it all start between her and C.S. Lewis? So when I first started the book, that's actually one of the main questions that I went into the novel with. Well, I didn't know it was going to be a novel. I didn't know what I was doing with this story. Um, I wrote this book in secret for a couple years. Very few people knew about it because I actually didn't know what it would become. I didn't know what it would be. And But the question I went into is, who was she and how did they end up together? How did they find each other? And so most of the information we have about her is either his grief in a grief observed where we're like, you know, his, he's shattered at her death or it's from Shadowlands and Deborah Winger. And all we know is Deborah Winger equals Joy Davidman. Exactly. She, yeah. she did exactly. an incredible I, job, but it was just, that movie was as much as Deborah Winger was amazing. That movie was about C.S. Lewis. It was about how her death affected him. That was the, yeah. That was I the, thought it was really about Anthony Hopkins. It was actually Anthony. <laughs> it was actually Anthony Hopkins pretending to be C.S. Lewis, but he was actually Anthony Hopkins exactly. Right. <laughs> so, who six months later played Hannibal Lecter? So, I, I, I my question was this idea of of how did they. If that's told from his point of view, how did they get together? So that's how it all began for me in writing the book. And I was really curious about her side of the story. So when I first started writing it, I thought I was just writing this love story that seemed fairly simple from Shadowlands. And then when I started doing my research, realized was this powerful transformational journey of this American divorcee um, who was not divorced when they started talking wife with two young kids, ex-atheist, um, former Jew, ex-communist. So to answer the question, how did they start to meet each other or come to know each other? You had this American woman, uh, an award-winning poet. She won the Yale Younger Poets Award. She was a genius, a true, like, protege genius. Mm-hmm. Born and raised in New York, never left New York, except for the six months she spent writing screenplays in Hollywood. And then over here, you have C.S. Lewis, the, you know, English Don who had never left Ireland or England for all of his life, except for the six months he was in the war in France. So how did, how did this happen? So what happened was Joy Davidman was married with two young kids and her husband had PTSD from the Spanish civil war. And so he was, he was, had some issues as one would, because they didn't really have that diagnosis then they called it shell shock or Mm -hmm. neurosis, and they didn't really get a lot of help. And he had been suicidal before. And one night he called Joy when she was home alone with her two young sons, their two young sons, and said he was not coming home and that he couldn't take it anymore. And so she thought he was going to take his life and she couldn't find him. She couldn't reach him. This is 1947 and there's only one car they're sharing and he's, he's gone and she's out in, in the suburbs of New York and she finds herself on her knees and she doesn't understand why because she's an atheist and a materialist and a communist at the time, a fading communist, but a communist. And she said that for 30 seconds, she could 
it was like the world cracked open, like a door flew open. She was completely surrounded by someone or something that was love and that she forgave people. And that one of my favorite quotes from Joya, she says she realized that life was way too intense to forever be endured with logic alone, with flesh and blood alone. And she came out of that 30 second experience and instead of discarding it or or putting it off to emotion or, or laughing at herself, she decided to find out what it meant. And mm. so she was researching all the world religions and trying to figure out what that mystical, she called it mystical, 30 seconds was about. And she remembered reading the books of C.S. Lewis. And this is before Narnia, so he's not famous for that yet. But he had written The Screwtape Letters, The Pilgrim's Regress, um, he had written The Great Divorce, and so she had The Problem of Pain. So she wrote to him because that's what our joy is like. She doesn't just wonder and read somebody's book. She writes them a letter. And mm -hmm. obviously it was a very impressive letter because Lewis's brother, Warney, says we have just, in his diaries, says we have just received a letter from the most fascinating American woman. And Lewis received hundreds of letters a week. He, he was a prolific letter writer. He answered every letter he got. But it did take six months for him to answer. And in January of 1950, Joy received her first letter from him. And they started an almost three-year correspondence until she went to England in 1952. And they're gone. Yep. The letters are gone. gone. When I read that in the book, I just like, oh, <gasps> <Yes. laughs> took my yes. breath. I was like, oh, how? I mean, I understand he got so much correspondence, but I know it's terrible. So, it's so how did we find out? Because was that in the book or was that in your, is it in your, a pot, somewhere you said that the letters were gone, but I don't think it was the book. It was the podcast. And the podcast, yep. they, they, they were in a, a barn or a shed and and they they got wet or something. So I asked her son in my podcast, because two of the podcasts are with her son, Douglas Gresham. And I asked him what happened to the letters and whether he was hiding them from me. And he said that he had them stored in a trunk that he put in a friend's shed and the shed was vandalized and everything was gone. Mm. I know. So I my dream is that someday somebody's cleaning out their attic and they're like, oh, look, a cache of letters from C.S. Lewis. But the, um, the poetry takes place of the letters and the poetry was miraculously found about nine years ago. We didn't know it existed. So maybe somewhere floating in the world, those letters exist. And Lewis burns his letters. Yes. He As says his practice. He, yep. he, he didn't keep any letters. Patty, I have to say that those sonnets that she wrote, how you, in, you introduced your chapters often with her poetry, that was one of my favorite parts of the book. I just, I found that through line of longing, that theme of longing, I felt like you explored so well in the prose. And then it was just set up with the sonnets as well. Can you kind of talk to us about how Joy came to realize that some of her desires were harmful to her? And yet, I mean, she had to kind of grapple with that, maybe tease out this theme of longing in the book. So longing is also a big theme in Lewis's work. Um, 
And it's, I think it's part of what attracted her to his work is that this longing she felt that was unmet, that she always tried to satisfy through work, men, love affairs, um, children, success awards that Lewis wrote about this longing. Um, I never say the German word right, but it's shank, shank, sen, 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 We'll put the written word in, in the end notes, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a concept that Lewis wrote about most of his life, this particular longing that the longing for the thing itself is greater than having the thing itself. Mm. And so I, that is part of what brought them together, but her poetry is astounding. And like I said, about nine years ago, a box of her unpublished poems was found in the back of a closet in Oxford. It was in the closet of Joy's best friend, Jean Wakeman, who actually isn't in the novel because we, the novel stops when, it stops before she meets Jean. I don't wanna give anything away. <laughs> so the novel stops before she meets Jean, but the love sonnets are, are in this closet. They found 300 unpublished poems of hers in that box. Wow. 300 unpublished poems. And among those 300 unpublished poems was a folder of 45 love sonnets for C.S. Lewis. That's what it was labeled, 45 mm. love sonnets for C.S. Mm. Had a little ditty at the front that said, these are for you, you might care to read them. Um, so, meaning Lewis, a letter to Lewis, to Jack. And so those sonnets, and her words and her emotions poured out in those pages, to me, in a way, replaced the grief of lost letters and what she might have said in those lost letters. Hmm. One of the things I really appreciated about the book and was really a thing I thought about a lot was how in a time when women were not allowed to be they weren't allowed to gain entrance to Oxford. They weren't allowed to be present in a lot of public life. C.S. Lewis really seemed to appreciate her for her intellect. And was, they had that um, phileo love so much before the Eros. They, they, he really respected her and valued her apart from her being a woman. And that's just something that really was, was I think probably rare then, especially for somebody with a background like him. Um, can you talk a little bit about maybe why he, ha he did have that respect for her out of the gate like that? I think it's because they had those almost three years of pen friendship and her intellect, her incredibly keen intellect was evident in her writing. And if you read her writing, sometimes, especially when I read her nonfiction, uh, her poetry is smooth, is, is smooth sailing and, and there's layers upon layers in it. But her nonfiction, when you read her essays, I was able to read uh, her thesis. I didn't read the whole thing. I don't have time. Uh, Anyway, her thesis for graduate school was on Lord Ori, and it's at the Wade Center in Chicago. And just reading the first couple pages, you're like, <sighs> because she was, so I assume her letters were the same, just full of wit and intellect and brilliant questions and, and wanting to know the story and the meaning behind things, not taking things at face value. So before they even met, he had a profound respect for her and her work, and her intellect, and her mind. He, let's think about this. 1950, you couldn't Google to see what someone looked like. He had no idea 
what she looked like. Hmm. There were no pictures of Joy Davidman out there. And now Lewis had been on the cover of Time magazine. He had, you know, he was famous by 1950. Although Narnia hadn't come out, he was famous for his other work and had been on the cover of Time in the United States. So she knew what he looked like. But um, so if he fell in love with her at all in the beginning in, in the way of Philia of friendship, it was her intellect. So, but also... Lewis respected intellect more than anything. And he had two fantastic examples of intellectual women that he loved before Joy even came along. And there is a podcast about this too, but one is his mother, Flora, who was um, had a math degree in the 1800s in Ireland, Queens College. Extremely rare. And then the other was his very dear friend, Dorothy Sayers, who was also an intellectual genius and never took anything at face value and knew five languages and taught herself Italian so she could translate Dante's Paradise Lost. And Joy's son says that he has only seen Lewis cry twice, once when his mother died and once when Dorothy Sayers died. Mm. He wept both times. And so he had these two women that he loved not with arrows, not, not falling in love, but women that he respected and loved that were almost the prototypes for joy. So that when she came along, she felt familiar and wonderful instead of like, Whoa, what's that? Patty, I want to, we need to kind of, I want to talk Jack for a second, but before we leave joy, Oh my gosh, she was one of these people, and we've all met them, where they are boiling on the inside. They may be, (laughs) they may be calm, cool, and collected on the outside, but they are boiling on the inside. Is that really what she was like? It seemed, it seemed so, because there were people that didn't approve of her. She was, she was, she was controversial. Tolkien comes to mind. He seemed to be, you know, very, I don't know. Critical. Critical. Yes. And uh, unfairly so by our standards today. But she was she really like that? Was she just she just seemed to be a person that there was a lot, a lot going on on the inside. Absolutely. She was so intellectually curious that it could boil over into what might seem brash or arrogant to maybe say, a staid English Don, mm. you know, not to the New York literati and in New York, she was, she was considered, you know, the Yale younger poets award. She was considered a brilliant writer. Precocious. She was and, and precocious. Yeah. Yes. Right. right. Nice. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and I think if she was alive today, that's what she'd be called. Interesting. Um, she would never be called, you know, quiet. That's for sure. But she was an inquisitor. She was uh, an intellectual. She was a knowledge gatherer. She was a seeker. She wasn't scared to ask the question. She wasn't scared to debate. She wasn't scared to say, wait, that can't be right. And even if it came from someone who you weren't supposed to question, she would question them. And so someone like Tolkien, who was not bred to understand a woman like Joy Davidman. Mm -hmm. So if we really look at it and try to take the emotion out of it, which is hard for me because in the book, I write in the first person as if I'm Joy. I'm not even positive Joy understood the antipathy, that word against her from him. Mm -hmm. Because in the end, he was very kind. 
but he offered Douglas to live with him after um, Jack died. But if we think about Tolkien, he was a very, very devout Catholic. And in walks this woman, this married woman with two kids from New York. And Jack wants to hang out with her. Jack's debating with her. Jack's co-writing with her. Jack's asking her opinion. Jack's taking her to the pub. And Tolkien just can't understand this. He once in a letter to someone called it a strange marriage. And Mm. I don't think, I've thought about that a lot, what he meant by that. And I don't think he meant that they were strange. I think he meant, I don't get it. It's strange to me. I don't understand how this man who's my dearest friend, who I thought we had, you know, the same likes and dislikes, fell in love with this woman that I don't think he ever was being mean about joy in those comments like some people take, but I do think he never understood it. And a lot of the Oxford Dons didn't understand it. But in the end, Maudlin, which is where Lewis taught and did not admit women to Maudlin in 1950, there were women's colleges, but Maudlin wasn't one of them. And he, you know, he brought her into that society. He threw a party for her at Maudlin. And they had some really dear friends at Oxford in the mm-hmm. end. So things did shift. Well, and I don't want to, this is a show about, about, about Joy. So I don't want to spend all our time on, on Jack as, as he was called by his friends and by Joy, uh, C.S. Lewis. I don't want to spend all our time on, but I, I think we do understand Joy through the eyes of others uh, a lot. And so can we kind of switch and talk about Jack a bit? I, I, I think he... We just have to spend a little time on him so that we can understand her. I think that was one of the hardest parts for me in writing the book and one of the more terrifying parts for me in writing this book. I had to pretend nobody would ever read it. And that was easy to do because nobody knew I was writing it. So why would anybody read it? But um, making him human. And you're right. We we understand C.S. Lewis better once we know joy. Joy leads us to a different and more human C.S. Lewis than we're accustomed to. So we put C.S. Lewis on a pedestal. Mm. We put carve him in marble. Um, we might even put a nimbus around him like a saint. And we definitely don't put his house shoes. like you, <laughs> Or his torn coat or his, yes. yeah, or his ash speckled house, like, or that he... Ne- was hardly ever without a cigarette or pipe in his mouth. Mm. So we, we, we quote him, we make memes, we, you know, but we forget. And and some people seem to almost worship him. Um, what he says is, is more important than gospel. It's, it's, you know, he becomes something more than the man Clive Staples Lewis, who was a wounded, beautiful, brilliant, but wounded man. He had his pains and his hurts. He lost his mother when he was nine. He went to horrific boarding school and was wounded by that. He um, he went to World War Two and World War One and was injured. He watched his lieutenant get killed right next to him. He did trench warfare and ended up in the hospital. He he was turned down three times for a professorship at Oxford, which is mm-hmm. why he eventually went to Cambridge. So. He was human. He had writer's block, which I talk about in the novel. He didn't know what to write next. He, he 
had his heart very, very guarded and kept himself from falling in love. By the time he admitted his love for Joy, he was 57 years old. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it was terrifying to write about him as human, as a man who was kind of sloppy in his dress and attire and sloppy in his housekeeping and a little like the absent-minded professor because he was thinking of things like Narnia and um, translating things and writing an entire compendium of the English literature of the 17th century. So we forget that he's not just this man of great quotes. He's human. And Mm. that was wonderful and terrifying to write about. Well, I think you did a good job of making Joy very human as well. And I, I liked how you really walked us through her misery in a marriage with an unfaithful husband and what that looked like and all of the positive characteristics that she had to cultivate. Was her husband truly as bad as was depicted? I mean, can can you kind of talk about what she had to go through that really took courage and fortitude? Yes. So I always say nobody is what, you know, nobody's black and white. And I already, I previously mentioned he had PTSD. So he gets some grace from that. But simultaneously, I was writing as joy. I was writing from the seat of her heart. I was writing from behind her eyes. I was writing in the key of empathy for joy in the first person. So therefore, he was a scoundrel. So in in real life, there were other parts to him. But I once talked to Lyle Dorsett, who's the man who wrote Joy's very first biography back in the late 80s. I think early nineties. And he actually interviewed Renee, Bill's second wife and said, was he as big a scoundrel as he? And she said, Oh yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, he was an alcoholic. He, he had PTSD. He, I mean, he's a man who would say things like, um, if a man is going to be a writer, he needs two things, a typewriter and a wife. And they both must be in working order. Like, that's Bill Gresham. But yeah. simultaneously, there's some grace involved for his PTSD, for the way he was raised, for the times, it's 19, the 30s and 40s. But at the same time, he, he caused Joy so much pain with his philandering and with his neuroses and with his angry outbursts and with his cruelty that I, I show that she loved him And I show that there were times she grieved the loss of him, but I didn't back down from showing how he treated her. But I also didn't back down from showing Joy's faults either. Hmm. So how did her son feel about the way that their dad was depicted? So Joy has, for listeners, Joy had two sons. She never had any children with Lewis, but Lewis ended up being her her son's stepfather. But Davey passed away years ago. I think it's been six or seven years since Davey passed away. Davey was the oldest son. Douglas is the youngest son. He was born in 1945. So he's just turning 75 this year. And he is completely in charge of the C.S. Lewis estate, meaning I couldn't have published this book in the format it's in without permission from the C.S. Lewis estate. So I could have published the book, just not in the format it's in, meaning I use her sonnets, I use real words, Lewis said, I use real words, she said. And he says, and I'm quoting him exactly, because it's my favorite quote about the book, that this is 
as accurate or more accurate than biographies and essays written about his mother. Did did he have any issue, Patty, with you writing it as sort of a biography? Well, it's biographical, obviously, but it's it's is it historic fiction or is it a biography or what what's the deal there? So he didn't know about it till I was finished. So I didn't on purpose, didn't talk to anybody from the family. I, I didn't talk to anybody. I told, I wrote it in secret. He never had a problem with it. He felt, in fact, the reason that I wrote it as, as biographical fiction instead of as a biography is that there are biographies. And I knew that with, with my readership and, and having other books out and believing in the power of story, like we talked about at the front end of this podcast, I really believed that this was the best way to tell her story because I could tell it in a narrative way. And in biographical fiction or historical biofiction, we like to call it, I guess, we, we can imagine what they talked about, what they wore, how she felt. I can talk in the first person. You can't do that in a biography. Yeah. So uh, there were, there were huge swaths that had to be imagined. I I prefer the word inspired, but there were huge swaths that, that to make her come alive needed to be fleshed out in ways that you can't do in biography. And I didn't truly answer your question about, whether he was upset the way his father was portrayed and he wasn't because it was real. Yeah. Now you could be upset that people know, but you know, Bill had a, Bill was who he was and he had a terrible Mm -hmm. reputation. And like I said, I didn't whitewash joy either. So I think he felt that it was very accurate. Well, and that was something that I really noticed. It was the kind of warts and all approach that you took. And I think it makes the characters fuller more believable more more lovable really I, I but I, I've always heard that biographers fall in love with their subjects sometimes and then aren't really honest about things that happen I mean did you find yourself ever kind of like oh, I'm falling in love with her I need to like <laughs> back I need to be a bit more I mean did you did you struggle with yourself on that I totally struggled with that so it wasn't so much that I fell in love with her, which I did, but it's that I wanted everybody else to fall in love with her. Uh-huh. I wanted to redeem her image in a way. And so to make everybody love her, I felt like I had to maybe leave some things out or soften them. or. And it's almost like I heard her say, not audibly, I'm not insane, but it's almost like I heard her say, you get all of me or you get none of me. Hmm. Mm. And I just dove in with that approach. Like, here are the terrible choices I made when I was in pain. Here are the terrible things that needed to be redeemed in my life. Here's this anger I have that even once I thought I was better and had everything I wanted would still boil over like a pot. Like, here's who I am. And I felt that that was really important. And Lewis talks in A Grief Observed about... I wasn't perfect. She wasn't perfect, but together. So I think that, um, yes, I wanted to soften her sharper edges, not for me, because I love her just as she is, but I wanted to soften her sharper edges so other people would like her, Mm -hmm. but I didn't. Well, 
I think she would appreciate that, Patty. Um, I do too. I think Jack, I Jack says that Joy was his pupil. He calls her my pupil, my teacher, my subject, and my sovereign, my trusty comrade, friend, shipmate, fellow soldier, my mistress, but at the same time, all that any man friend has ever been to me. Wow. Wow. Uh, Yeah, my husband doesn't say that. I don't (laughs) (laughs) While you were reading that, my eyes were closed because I was like, yes, I mean, Here's a man who resisted love so firmly. Like he couldn't get the words out of his mouth. And then he wrote that. Mm. Talk about a transformational journey wow. to love, right? Mm. So mm. I I can't I don't even have anything to add to that. That's who she was to him by the end. Well, Patty, this is an incredible book. You are an incredible writer. I I think that Joy herself would be so proud of this piece. I think it, as well as anybody could have depicted a life. I think you have you have depicted Joy's life, and wherever she is now, I I hope she's listening. I hope she's a I hope she's in our our listening audience today because I I don't know. She was just such a incredible woman, and you've you've done a great job with her life. So thank you. And thank you for coming on our show today and talking to us about her and about your book. No, thank you for those really kind words. I, I have a picture of her in my office that I keep up and I really believe that, um, she was with me in a way, um, uh, that, that having, having her words spoken and the lessons she teaches us now were inspired, you know, by her not not me so thank you for the kind words and thank you for having me this well, was really fun it was fun and tell us in our in our curvies where they can get your book anywhere everywhere everywhere um yeah so it came out in hardcover in october of 2018 but now the there you go and now the paperback is out and the paperback is an expanded edition ah. and it has a bunch of um, bonus material in it it has some essays I wrote. It has um, an imagined letter, like a full three-page letter that I wrote from her to him when I was writing the book just to get a feel for her language and then never put it in the book. And there's um, a timeline of their lives and where they intersect and then what books were published. There's So there's some great bonus material in the expanded edition. Um, you can buy it literally wherever books are sold. The paperback's only been out for a few weeks. And Patty, I just want to add that this has been my pandemic companion this book there's oh, been many yes there's been many nights that my husband's gone ahead and fallen asleep and I've clicked back on the little light and I've opened my book and stayed up oh, way too late that reading. makes me so happy and the and you have a podcast too about uh, behind the scenes of becoming Mrs. Lewis uh, and I listened to those they were fabulous that's where we got to hear from um uh, from from Joy's son. Oh, what, what, I'm missing his Douglas. name. Douglas. Douglas. Gresham, Douglas yeah. and Davy. Davy's the one yeah, that's yeah. passed away. But Douglas and we heard from others who you know who had a part to play in the um, in the process. And I, I I found that to be great. So highly recommend the podcast as well. Connect with Bell Curve on on Facebook at Bell Curve Pod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcast. Please leave us a review. It really helps us. See you soon.